0: Uh, This morning, we're going to kind of continue on this conversation that we began last week from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there and kind of get ready to follow along with me. But the question we asked last week was, does the church have anything to say about such things as immoral behavior? Um, And there's kind of two points of view that I wanted to tackle, one uh, which we largely tackled last week, and we'll spend a little more time on this morning. Is uh, specifically how does the church handle things like immorality, um, other matters of life within the context of its church community? When you're talking about the actual uh, members of a church, uh, like how do we how do we handle uh, something like immorality? And so, you know, the story that we looked at last week gave some instruction. And then the other question is, um, what is the relationship between the church's moral beliefs and the outside world who may have um, a set of beliefs that are contrary to what you'd find within a believing community? Like, What's our relationship with that? Uh, Is there there a a way in which the church can speak into that? Um, Ought the church speak into that? And uh, and so we get a little bit of perspective because of this scenario that was occurring within this ancient church at Corinth. Uh, we, we, we get some insight into that, so we want to look a little bit at that this morning. Now, I, I do think it's important for us, again, to just be reminded of some differences between what we think of and what we experience as church and what uh, what Paul would have understood as church. You know, if I, if, if I invited Paul to come to church this morning, uh, he would have a very different idea about what that meant compared with what is actually going on here. And that doesn't mean that what's going on here is necessarily bad. It's just it's different from what would have uh, certainly been at the forefront of his mind. You know, when we think about the word church, we think about maybe a building, right? Somebody says the word church, your first reaction toward that might be a building that is known to be a church. Or um, we might think initially of something like an event, right? We go to church. Um, Paul would not, that, that wouldn't even have hit his radar at all. Uh, you say the word church to Paul, Paul would have only imagined people, That would have been the first thing that would have come to mind Uh, in paul's vernacular the church was uh, a group of followers that were deeply committed to following the teachings of jesus and also were very deeply committed to each other Um, they were truly in each other's business they uh they really referred to and felt toward one another uh, that they were like brothers and sisters uh, uh, words that we might throw casually around, but words that had deep significance to them. Uh, the the fact that I came up here and I invited you all to say hi to somebody, only scratches the surface of what you would have experienced in the community. Uh, Paul would have taken me aside after the church service is over and said, "Hey, where was all the kissing? You know, you told me to come to church. I was expecting to see right because because." Um, brothers and sisters in the Lord, they were instructed to greet one another with a holy kiss. There was, there was, a, there was a level of intimacy, of, of being in one another's lives, where, uh, uh, you know, that, it just looked a little different from us cold-hearted New Englanders, right? Especially on a cold winter day. Um, and so, uh, just to kind of say out loud what is going on here, um, we have what I think we could describe as a Christian-based worship service, right? Uh, that's, that's the event that we sort of pull together Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, is this, this Christian-based worship service. And it's, it's, derived, it's derived a little bit from the ancient church. Uh, it's derived a little bit from church tradition. It's derived a little bit from... Uh, the evangelical roots that we have as, you know, especially uh, Western and even American Christians. And it's derived a little bit from our culture, right? That's kind of what's going on here. Again, different from what Paul would have understood to be the regular gathering of the church family. Um, We might ask, are you a church person? Uh, Or we might ask, are you a religious person? And that might mean something like, do you go to church? Uh, or uh, do you believe in God? And, and those questions can be very, very unspecific right just like, uh, just like the word Christian has from time to time be- been very, very unspecific. Um, uh, when people were first called Christians, uh, they were called that because they were this peculiar bunch of people that acted very differently from the rest of the world around them uh, and It had come to be known that they were followers of the way. Uh, Of what way? Well, of the way of Christ. And so they were given this nickname. or They were called Christians. Um, But Christian took on different meanings at different times. It came to be synonymous with, at one point, practically every citizen of the Roman Empire uh, for hundreds of years. It became sort of the de facto description of a person who was simply an inhabitant of Western countries for hundreds more, regardless of how authentic their beliefs were or how Christ like their practices were. And so Paul would have had a very narrow way of seeing uh, who the church really is. He would have seen the church as people who believed that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and who have embraced Christ as their Lord. Uh, That would have been the simple definition for a Christian, if you were to ask Paul. And the believe part, well, that was easy, right? Because anybody could, just as anybody can, say, we believe anything, right? To to just talk about a belief is, is really one thing. Uh, the trickier part was the Lord part. Um, not only did they profess a belief in Jesus that he was raised from the dead, but they also embraced him as their Lord. And that was, that was far more difficult because, because people could test that, right? People could test whether or not you actually embraced Jesus as Lord based on the evidence that came out of your life, the way that you lived your life. Um, was a was an indication of whether or not you were actually following Jesus. And so um, I want to point out, just as we're getting into the, the text that we're going to look at this morning, that, that Paul's going to use some language that differentiates between two categories. Uh, he's going to use the language of insiders and outsiders, right? People that are inside the church and then people that are outside the church. And uh, I just want to recognize, uh, again, like I did last week, that that there are people in this room that are outsiders. I don't, know, I don't know who they are. I don't know in particular who they are, but like you gather enough people around together, right? Um, it's a, something like a worship service, and you're going to have people that have truly professed a belief in Christ that God raised him from the dead and that have committed their lives to him as Savior and Lord and have become part of this this, this, this church family, right? There are people who uh, that is a great matter of importance in their lives. And, and then you are also going to have, again, and this sort of kind of, I think, really delves into our evangelistic roots. We see our worship service on Sunday morning as an opportunity not only for the church to gather, but for other people to experience that who might at some point decide to become part of uh, the church. And so if you're here today, and as we're, as we're going through this, there's, there's something that makes you feel like I'm an outsider, right? Or I'm on the outside. I, I just, I want, I want to set your heart at ease a little bit. I want, I want for you, I don't want for anybody to feel bad for where they are with regard to how they relate to uh, the church, right? Again, I am so glad you're here. I... I, I (laughs) Don't tell the Christians in the room, but I'm more glad that you're here than that they're here. (laughs) All right? Seriously. Uh, We love the fact that God has so blessed our church uh, with the ability to engage our community. And to see people coming in that don't know Christ. That is a major part of why we gather together Sunday after Sunday. And so, um, again, I just want you to know how valued you are and how glad I am and so many others here are that you're here. But I also don't want to just completely ignore the reality of what is going on here. Because it's going to become important as we're getting through this this morning. Um, So, our church, um, this church service, uh, there's Christians in the room. And there are people who are, if I could say it this way, who are not yet Christians, uh, whom I hope will at some point decide uh, to become followers of Jesus. And again, it's not bad, it's just different, right? And, and so we just need to understand what we're talking about. Alright, so 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be up on the screen behind me. I'm just going to read through the text, um, and then we'll go through it. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 9. Uh, So Paul writes to the church. He says, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So this letter that we're reading is called 1 Corinthians. Uh, We have in the biblical canon, we have two letters that Paul wrote to this church in Corinth. We call them 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. The first one was written first. The second one was written Second, very good. Uh, just glad to know you're all with me. Well, it turns out Paul had written other correspondence to the church as well. Uh, correspondence that we do not have um, any possession of. Uh, we don't know exactly what was in Paul's first letter. It was not, It's not part of the biblical canon, and uh, at this particular point, there, is no, um, there are no manuscripts that have survived the years, right? Most likely because they weren't considered to be canonical writings or part of what would be preserved as the scriptures. Uh, And so they uh, weren't—this letter that Paul is referring to wouldn't have been written over and over and copied and copied and copied and copied and handed on, you know, kind of from church to church and then also down from generation to generation until ultimately it was uh, uh, really kind of put into uh, and decided to be part of the canon of scripture. Uh, So anyway, but Paul wrote this letter and he says, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean, right? So <laughs> there's, there's a misunderstanding with what that meant. And so Paul says, I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. That is, if you were to walk outside um, the context of your church and come across greedy people, swindling people, idolatry people, uh, these are not the people that I, w- I was commanding you not to associate with. Otherwise, you would have to leave this world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or a sister, and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders, remove the evil person from among you. So just as a reminder from last week, uh, the situation in Corinth was that there was, this, uh, there was this behavior of gross sexual immorality, described by Paul as something that even the world wouldn't tolerate, and it was being tolerated within the context of the church community. It was being treated as if it were nothing, as if it were not sexual immorality. And so Paul had deep concern the way the church was navigating through what he saw as a crisis, which they apparently did not see as a crisis. And so even, even here, as we're given a little bit of insight with how the church relates to the outside world, remember, the context is really largely pointing to this particular situation that Paul needed to have dealt with, all right? Um, uh, and so here's the question. When, when it comes to Christians, who should and should they not associate with? Paul said, I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother and sister and is, and then he lists these five things, sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or verbally abusive or a drunkard or a swindler. Ooh, was that six? One, two, three, four, five. Six things. I just learned something. All right. Um, when I was preparing this, I wasn't using my fingers, so I apologize. Uh, so he says, I don't want you to associate with such people. To associate is to mingle closely with another person right there's a um there's a there's a a sense that there's deep community and connection with this person and um i do think it's really important for us to understand that what paul is forbidding here this is not intended to be like the first reaction the church has toward an immoral person okay uh, don't read it that way don't understand it this way uh, we've seen that kind of culture uh, as a prevalent way that people lived within spiritual communities with one another, right? That um, you, got this, you got this group of people, and then it is found out that somebody has, uh, has done something or is doing something wrong, and they are expelled from the church community, just like that, right? As if everybody else in the church community doesn't have their own hidden darkness and sins and all of that. Um, and so that's a, that's a very poor way to do church life, with one another, right? And so Paul isn't saying, hey, I want for your gut reaction toward another person's sin to be to kick them out. Can I get an amen? Anybody glad for that? Right? And so forbidding association was more like the last resort than the first resort in Paul's mind, right? We talked about this last week. It's important for, uh, for the church body to be a place, and we're going to talk about this a little more later on, to be full of grace, full of grace for one another. Listen, I know you're not perfect. If you don't know it already, you will at some point. If we get to know each other well enough, I'm not perfect either. right? And so what we need is we need grace for one another. We need room for the humanity of one another to continue to exist without feeling like every time I struggle with something, I have to run and hide for shame of how it will be treated or or understood within the church community. That's not the kind of church we're going for, right? So forbidding association is the last resort, not the first resort. Now, remember, this specifically refers to a person who may have a verbal profession of faith, but is choosing to live in a way that is contrary to that profession, right? This is the distinction that Paul makes between people who are within the church community and people who are outside the church community. What we had in this scenario was a man who claimed to be, who professed to be a believer in Christ, who professed to have embraced Christ as Lord, and yet was carrying on in his life in what Paul describes as sexual immorality. Um, And that introduces this list of things that Paul uses um, to, to indicate the kind of person that you are not to associate with, right? And, and the sexually immoral is just one, but really the deciding factor was this, was this disconnect between what a person professed, this person who was a part of the church community, and what they actually were doing. Um, now, this doesn't mean that the church consists only of sinless Christians, okay? What we don't have is some kind of sin detector or sin thermometer, right, that everybody can walk through or be put up against to determine, well, how much sin do you have, if any, in your life, right? And based on that indication, decide whether or not you're part of the church, right? There is no such thing as a sinless Christian. That is, there is no such thing as a—, as a follower of Christ, a truly devoted follower of Christ who does not continue to struggle with sin in their lives. And so what Paul is not expecting or insisting on is this idea that you're going to have a church community full of perfect people. However, what Paul did understand was that to become a Christian means that something has happened in the life of a person. Something has happened. A little bit like the difference between uh, getting a visa to enter and visit a country that's not yours, where while you're visiting there, deportation is always a possibility, right, to be sent back to what is actually your country. The difference between that versus going through the process of naturalization and swearing an oath where you become a permanent citizen with all the rights and responsibilities of citizenship, right? There's something has happened in the life of the person who has taken that oath of citizenship. And the way Paul looks at a Christian is this is a person in whose life something has occurred. Uh, uh, we have throughout the Bible, uh, the New Testament, uh, you know, where people are are. Becoming Christians, becoming followers of Jesus, we have we have all this language of the old life and the new life, the old self and the new self, um, the instructions to put to death right that which was before and be raised to new life. Words like being reborn or born again, uh, a new creation where old things are passed away and the new has come. Right there is there is something in particular, that has happened in the life of a person who's become a Christian. It isn't a come in as you are and leave exactly the same without any change whatsoever. And so I've got to tell you, be careful. Be careful of any version of Christianity that tries to downplay or even eliminate the notion that true conversion will, will, will undoubtedly affect a change in our hearts. And that change in our hearts must become evident in the expressions of how we live. Right? That is, what, uh, is part of what it means to become a follower of Jesus. Um, now somebody might ask the question, well, you know, but I still struggle with things that were part of my old life. Does that mean I'm not a Christian? Does that mean I'm not a part of the church? Because I still continue to struggle with those things. Now, um, th- the reality is it's no surprise that someone who becomes a Christian may struggle with elements of their former selves, right? Like that wouldn't have been a surprise to Paul. Paul would not, if he, if, if, if he walked into a church community like ours uh, and, and started kind of talking to us and listening to and hearing about our experiences of following Jesus, uh, and we were really brutally honest with what that meant, and what that looked like, there would be no, Paul would not be surprised whatsoever to find out that you or I still struggle with with parts of what we regard as our former selves, those things that are supposed to be part of the old life, those things that are supposed to be put to death, right? But that, in reality, aren't actually all the time. That wouldn't have been a surprise to Paul. What would have been a surprise to Paul is that somebody would proudly embrace their ungodly behavior. What today somebody might call, I'm just living my best life, Or, you know, I'm just being true to myself. Or, I'm just following my heart, right? We've, we've heard these things. Some of us have said these things. And so what, what would have surprised Paul, what wouldn't have made sense in the mind of Paul as a, as, as, a, as a theologian, as a person that had a deep understanding of what it meant to become a Christian, is this idea that, that somebody could proudly embrace their ungodly behavior and also claim to be following Christ. Like, no, that's, that's not a thing, right? And, and especially with the support of the church community backing that person up, like we happen to see in this particular story. Paul would be like, what are we doing? <laughs> like, what? you know, I mean, he would, just, he would have been incredulous. Like, what are we doing here? If, if, if there isn't this understanding and recognition that when a person becomes a follower of Jesus, something changes, something new occurs. And so Paul gives this instruction. He says, don't even eat with such a person, right, who has this, this disconnect between what they profess and what they're proudly embracing that goes against what they are professing. He says, remove that evil person from among you, right? Don't even eat with them. Now, there's probably, uh, you know, in the event that we, we had something like this kind of come up and, and we were trying to figure out how do we in 2024, uh, how do we be a church? that, that, that uh, embraces the philosophy of what's going on here, even if we don't exactly administer it in the same way, because again, like we have, there's a different thing going on here. Um, it probably doesn't mean to just, like, it prob- Paul probably didn't mean for them to cut off all communication from that, that person, uh, right? We talked last week about how the primary purpose of Paul's instructions was not for punishment, it was for redemption, right? was always redemption in mind. Uh, but it did likely mean that the person was going to be excluded from uh, the weekly love feast, right? Which was, uh, from the best we can tell, a, a gathering of the true believers, the people who were truly committed to Christ, who celebrated that with a meal um, and with worship uh, of the Lord and, and probably with some instruction As well, right? The person was 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 forbidden, was to be excluded from such um, an environment as that. Now, so that's that guy. Now, uh, let's get back to what is the church's relationship with now the broader world. Uh, And so, in verse 10, Paul says, "I did not mean, right? So he had that clarification. I did not mean the immoral people of this world, or the greedy and swindlers and idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave this world." So uh, apparently the church misapplied the instruction of how they were to handle this one guy, right, who was involved in this gross sexual immorality um, and just allowed to continue on doing so. Um, they misapplied, probably intentionally, they probably took Paul's words and they, um, uh, Paul's instructions to not associate with the immoral person. And, they, and in their pride, they probably twisted his words and twisted the meaning and the application of what they meant. Um, And so Paul, he shows them how disingenuous they're being by showing their absurdity. He said, listen, if what I meant was for you to not associate with people in the world, then you would have to leave this world. Right? Like Paul understood, as we all should, well, it'd be practically impossible to not associate with people who are not on the inside of the church. Right? We come across and we interact with and we live among and live with and live in connection to people who are in the world, all the time, right? So clearly, that's not what Paul was instructing, and so we we can derive from that that Christ followers, if you're a Christ follower here today, we are expected to associate with non-Christ followers. There's an expectation that that will be a part of the way we live our lives; that we will associate. Um, uh, Jesus, when he prayed for his disciples. He prayed to the Father. He said, I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. You know, th- this kind of goes through the nature of who we are as Christians, who we are as people. We are people who are in the world, but we are also po- supposed to be people who are no longer made of the stuff of this world. And so um, when we read through the gospel accounts, we see Jesus setting the pattern, setting the example for what this looks like. Right? Jesus often visited very unlikely places for a person of his stature to visit. Jesus talked with and visited very unlikely people for such a person of his stature. Right? Uh, uh, And why was Jesus willing to do this? Because he understood that while he was not of this world, he was in this world. And he had come with a mission, with a desire to see people embrace the message that he had. In fact, The priority for his message was who he would describe as the sick who needed a doctor, right? Uh, The lost who needed to be found, those who were in darkness who needed to be exposed to the light. And so Jesus, he often visited unlikely places and talked to unlikely people. And the same way in which Jesus was not of this world, he says of us, those who are disciples of his, we are not of this world either. Now, Paul, Paul asks a question, and then he makes a statement. The question is, for what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? And then he makes a statement. He says, God judges outsiders. Right? So everybody who's a Christian gets to just breathe a big sigh of relief and understand it is not your job, it is not my job, it is way above our pay grade to judge the outside world. Because God will do that. And so let me just share with you some closing thoughts about what I think is the posture that we as Christians ought to have toward those who are not yet part of the church. Those who are, as in Paul's language here, outside the church. And, um, I think it's important to describe you know, what is um, one of our value statements as a church here. And that is that we lead with grace and we hold to truth. We lead with grace and we hold truth. To truth. Jesus always led with grace. Just like read through the experiences of his life and how he associated with other people. He led with grace. And it wasn't because Jesus saw something like the truth as being unimportant or secondary or negligible compared with grace. It's that he understood that in order to reach into the hearts of people, Grace is necessary. There are churches that have made it their culture to just come barging into the world full of their truth. <laughs> right? And if, 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 if I can be faithful enough to the truth, and if I can yell and scream more loudly about the truth than the people who are yelling and screaming about the lies that are contrary to the truth, that I'm doing God a great service. Right there there are uh, there are churches that have that that has been their custom, that has been their culture. Um I believe that the church ought to be when it, th- it comes to its posture toward the world full of grace. Like it we lead with grace. We lead with grace. I how many of you how many of you want me to come into your home? walk around for a little bit, right? Check out your pictures, maybe kind of go through your photo albums, log into your email, check your bank account. And then share with you my truth. Anybody? Anybody We have a we we'll have a program for that if you if you're interested. Anybody want to sign up for that small group? No, of course not. Right? You don't want to be treated that way. You don't want somebody that doesn't know you, that doesn't understand you like to come in just kind of Listen, I've got all kinds of things that I think are true that I could share with you. But my guess is, until there's something that relates us to one another, you probably couldn't care less about what I think is true. Because you think what is true what you think what is true. But there's a difference if the church takes on the way of Christ and extends grace Deep, deep, deep grace towards individuals. So we lead with grace and we hold to truth. Um, Jesus was described as full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Not that he was partly graceful, partly gracious, partly true. He's perfectly gracious, right? This is part of our doctrine of who God is, is that God is not a composite of various parts. We can't talk about the parts of God, right? And and you take all of these parts and you put them together, and voila, you have God. What God is, every single characteristic of who God is, God is that perfectly, completely. It's going to drive all you mathematicians bonkers. Because Jesus was 100% grace, and he was 100% true. You say, well, no, you can't have that. He had to have been 50-50. No. He was perfectly gracious, and he's perfectly true. There is, like we're all guilty of it, a tendency to be very unbalanced in where and how we relate to one another. Um. To, be, to, 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 to think that there's nothing but grace, and, and there's nothing really true that you necessarily have to hold to, right? And that's why I say we lead with grace, but we hold to truth. We don't see these things as mutually exclusive, nor we do we see them as one being more important than the other. But one proceeds in front of the other. Grace proceeds Truth, or at least I believe it ought to. Um, Some of you may not know this, but you're attending a church. I think you're attending a kind of church that is going to be experience criticism from every side, right? You're gonna you're gonna have on the one hand, you're gonna have people that think like this is a church that's just you know, (laughs) I hate to even say these words, but soft on sin. They just don't preach hard enough. They just they just don't bring the truth hard enough. It just just too much like the world, right? Like you you're gonna find you're gonna find certain Christian communities who criticize a church like ours as just not being sold out enough to the truth. Or, yeah, well, the truth as they see it, I suppose. You're, we're gonna have people who. Um, On the other end, would criticize our church for not being tolerant enough of of holding, truly holding to beliefs, holding on to them strongly, unwaveringly, feeling anchored, being anchored in those truths. Um, There are people in our city right now that think I'm uh, the kind of person who is the last person who ought to have a job like this. Because, you know, uh, this inability to imagine that there's such a thing as leading with grace and holding to truth. And so, with regard to our posture, it's important for us to understand that, from Paul's perspective, Christians shouldn't fear contamination by proximity to outsiders. Like I said at the beginning, if there are, and I hope there are, I believe there probably are, outsiders in our church service this morning, that's a really, really good thing. That's a beautiful thing. And Christians ought not to fear contamination by proximity to outsiders. Paul came, he came from a very insular kind of culture, right? Um, Very separatist kind of culture that looked at the people within the Jewish community as being the people of God and everybody else just on the outside with you know, practically no means of redemption. That's kind of the experience that Paul came from. Um, and, and that kind of separatist vision can do nothing but create fear, right? Fear for the other, fear for that person who is different, fear for that person who believes differently or whose worldview is not the same as mine. And we have to avoid feeling like, oh, if I, well, if I get too close to the non-Christian person, then then I'm going to be contaminated, right? Uh, again, it is expected that the Christian is going to associate with the non-Christian person. So if you don't have any Christian friends, that's a problem, right? If you're here today, like if you're a Christian and you don't really have any Christian friends, that's a problem. You need people speaking into your life. You need people, hopefully, that are a little further along the journey than you are, who are challenging you and inspiring you to take Deeper, further steps with Christ. But, if you're here today and you don't have any non-Christian friends, that's also a problem. Like, how can you be the salt of the earth and the light of the world if you're not actually in the world? Now, if you're one way with your Christian friends and you're another way with your non-Christian friends, that's the biggest problem of all. So contamination comes not from the outside, but from the inside. See, Paul wasn't afraid that the world was going to have a negative effect on the the, the life and the culture of the church. What he was concerned with was has the church been, is the church being contaminated from the inside, right? That's what was going on in the case of this immoral person. Um, Again, the problem seems to be this distinction between what one person claims and what they actually do. Paul says don't even eat with them, right? Which is obviously a very clearly different way that Jesus handled his business, right? Uh, Jesus was criticized for eating with sinners, (laughs) eating with those uh, who he ought not to eat, right? And Paul uh, Paul would have been in favor of such an action as that but recognizing that the contamination, the fear, or the concern we should have as a church is not that the world is going to contaminate what is good and what is beautiful and what is true within the church. It's going to happen from the inside. And so Paul says, who am I to judge? Who am I to judge? What we need to understand is that when we judge outsiders, we come off as mean See, that's the problem. That's part of the problem. When we judge outsiders, we come off as mean. There's just, uh, we see it, and, and we see the backlash in our, in our world right now. Because for many, many years, the church has just come off as being mean. Um, and that's why we need to lead with grace. When we ignore our own sin, but we're willing to point out the sins of others, that's hypocritical. Right, uh, Two of the big criticisms that you're going to find from people who are not church people and who are not interested in becoming church people, when you ask them about their opinion toward the church, they're probably going to say, well, the church is mean and the church is hypocritical. Is that a problem? <laughs> I, I feel like that's a publicity problem. <laughs> Right? Like, if if that's actually the message that the church is most associated with, that that's just a group of people who are mean, a group of people who are hypocritical. Because, listen, just like you and I know that one another is not perfect, people in the world also know we're not perfect. Right? They may even be more attuned to it. But this was their arrogance, the church in Corinth. They failed to ignore Paul's instructions when it came to one of their own, they even shielded their sinfulness by an apparent dissociation from the outside world, right? They they had all these ways of saying, look how different we are from the world. Look how spiritual we are. But they're only hypocrites. And so what do we need to do? We need to lead with grace. And we need to hold to what's true. This morning, if if you're a person here who wants to become a Christian, like as we're talking, and uh, there's just this recognition that you have not taken that step to actually embrace Christ as your Lord and your Savior, I want to encourage you at some point, as soon as possible, talk to another Christian. Any any Christian person ought to be able to lead you in a conversation that helps you find Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you don't know a Christian or, like, a Christian brought you to church this morning and you're not really sure if that person is a Christian, then feel free to reach out. Uh, Anybody on our staff uh, would be happy to have a conversation with you to help you discover what it means to become a follower of Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian here this morning, I just want to ask you, is there something in your life that's inconsistent with your faith? Don't be satisfied with staying as is. We ought to feel something about and toward our brokenness, our sinfulness, right? Not be like this immoral brother who just kind of went on as if he were doing nothing wrong, celebrating it even, justifying it even. And finally, spend some time thinking about your relationships. Do you have Christian following friends, maybe who are further along the way than you are? Are they speaking into your life? Do Do you have friends who aren't Christians? that you can practice real grace toward. You exercise those grace muscles toward a person who is unlike you. The grace that you have as a follower of Christ experienced from God. Are you able? Are you willing? Are you ready to share that grace with somebody else? We lead with grace. We hold.